Hello and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to be talking about the IDEA trial, which is a very cool, very interesting trial um, in adjuvant colon cancer. Now the main point of the trial is investigators were wondering, can we shorten adjuvant treatment for colon cancer from six months to three months? The decision to use six months of chemotherapy was an empiric decision, and it's based on the length of time that the previous trials had used. There had been no early stage clinical evidence saying that six months was necessary, and with the incorporation of oxaliplatin into the early stage chemotherapy and the risk of potentially permanent neurotoxicity, which is a cumulative effect, the question was, can we get away with fewer cycles? And this trial was done in patients with stage three colon cancer, so I know last episode we spoke about adjuvant chemotherapy in patients with stage 2, but this trial is really looking at stage 3. It was expected that the absolute difference in recurrence rates would be relatively small, so in order to run a trial that could detect the difference between these two arms, a large number of patients were required. And due to this, the IDEA trial was actually run as a collaboration between six different randomized trials performed by collaborative groups in uh, multiple countries. Yeah, I think that total was about 12,800 patients in 12 different countries. So including North America, U.S., Canada, many European countries, Japan, and Australia. So a really massive undertaking and really applaud the investigators. It's a very cool trial. Having multiple clinical trials running um, in a coordinated manner has the strength of increasing the number of patients and increasing our power, detecting smaller differences. Some drawbacks are individual trials are run with slightly different designs, and we'll get into that in more detail later, but there will be some heterogeneity between these trials that will add some difficulties into our final conclusions. So this study was using the chemotherapy doublet Fulpox or Capox, so 5-FU, either 5-FU infusional or capecitabine, which is the oral version of 5-FU, with oxaliplatin, either three months versus six months. And now, as we said, since this was six different randomized controlled trials that were being run at the same time. Some of them had different requirements. One of them required you to use Fulpox. Um, some of them allowed you to use Fulpox or Kpox. It was pretty much investigator choice, except for the one trial, which was the U.S. and Canadian trial that only allowed Fulpox. But there were some differences in the you know proportion of patients that got Fulpox versus Kpox. And although the main publication, the one that we're reviewing today, was looking at patients with stage 3 colon cancers, a few of the trials did also include stage 2 and rectal cancers, and some even included the consideration of celecoxib or bevacizumab. However, the patients with those features are not discussed in the trial that we're looking to today. So the primary endpoint of the study is disease-free survival, which is the time between randomization and either relapse, death, or development of a secondary colorectal cancer. And this study did use an intention-to-treat analysis in any patient that received one dose of the study drug. This was a non-inferiority trial. Non-inferiority trials are frequently used in the medical oncology setting, and it's worth uh, spending a little time just reviewing the, these types of clinical trials as understanding on how to interpret outcomes is a high-yield topic. Yeah, they're actually a lot more complex to read than um, just regular superiority trials, even though it seems like it would be more simple because you're just looking at to see if one treatment is not inferior, but it's actually a little bit more complicated. There are some set rules for a non-inferiority trial to be a reliable study, and as this is not always followed in trials that end up getting run and published, 
So the goal of a non-inferior trial is to look at a new treatment and to see if it is as good as the prior treatment. One rule that must be followed is that the control arm must be using an active drug. This cannot be a placebo run trial because finding that a new thing is not inferior to a placebo would mean that we should just give no therapy whatsoever. Another important aspect is to make sure that these trials are well powered because we're looking for a proportional benefit of this new drug to be seemingly similar to the proportional benefit of a control. Due to the narrow margins that we're looking at here, we need good power. And another important thing is to ensure that the endpoint is a clinically relevant endpoint. If we're trying to say that a new agent is as good as the prior, we want to make sure that the endpoint that we're comparing is, is clinically significant to the patient. And the saying of this trial using disease-free survival, as we've mentioned before, is a validated endpoint that estimates overall survival. So that is appropriate in the study. Unlike in superiority trials where the standard is to use an attention to treat um, analysis, for non-inferiority studies, it's actually preferred to use per-protocol analysis. Now, the reason for this is, as we see with superiority trials, if you use an attention to treat analysis, you'll have sometimes patients crossing over, so they're assigned to one arm, but then they don't end up getting the treatment, or they drop out, or they're not compliant. And with superiority trials, the problem is, is that it may mask a noticeable difference and make the trial a negative trial. But with non-inferiority trials, this could actually cause the trial to be a false positive trial because if you have patients crossing over, you may have no difference even though there is one, which would actually, instead of causing the trial to be a false negative trial, could actually cause the trial to be falsely positive and make you incorrectly think that one treatment is just as good as the other. So let's say, for example, you have an effective drug and you're trying to see if your new non-effective drug is non-inferior. And our outcome is, for this example, overall survival. So let's say a patient is enrolled into the new arm, which would be this drug that in reality is not effective, and then they begin to progress, and then they take the effective drug, which is the control, and then they're because of this now getting the effective drug, they live just as long as the patient who got the good drug to begin with. This would be a crossover that would potentially lead to similar overall survival, but the truth is you didn't need this new non-effective drug in the first place. This is in contrast to superiority trials, where if someone was to get the non-effective drug and then go back over to the control arm at crossover and get the effective drug, then in that case, their survival would ultimately be the same, which would make it a negative trial and make it such you would never want to have used that effective drug in the first place. If this wasn't confusing enough, the way that outcomes are reported in non-inferiority trials, which can be high-yield topics, use a lot of double negatives, which can trip up your thoughts, can trip up your interpretation of a trial, and a positive of a non-inferior trial would be rejecting the null, and this would be just non-inferior. A negative trial would be reported as not non-inferior. It's worth noting that if the control group did um, significantly better, you can see um, superiority of the control group over your new intervention. But due to the statistical design, you'll never be able to say that your new experimental group is superior to the control. Rather than belaboring the non-inferior design aspects and some complications with this, we'll include in the show notes some, some excellent discussions on these trials and highly recommend you look at these when you encounter your next non-inferior trial. For the sake of IDEA trial, we can say that they meet all of these um, considerations as the control group in this trial is the standard of care, which would be six months. 
we're trying we're using active drugs as the new experimental arm and we're using an outcome of disease-free survival we're never going to be able to say that two treatments are completely identical so what non-inferiority trials do is that you basically allow yourself to say that the, the new treatment is no worse than the control treatment by X amount. And the amount is usually decided by the investigators and experts in the field, um, basically by consensus, what we're willing to give up with this new drug or new treatment. In the case of the IDEA trial, they looked back at the mosaic study of Fulfox versus 5-FU and looked at the estimated disease-free survival in that population. In the mosaic trial, the three-year disease-free survival was 72%. The investigators then looked at that benefit and determined that uh, disease-free survival of 69.3%, which would be an absolute difference of 2.7%, would be generally considered close enough and a non-significant difference was decided to be their margin for non-inferiority. This calculated out to a hazard ratio of 1.12, and that hazard ratio is important because this is a proportional measurement that's used for the statistics, and as we'll see when we get to the final results, the actual disease-free survival in the um, patient cohorts was higher than the historical con comparison. So this ratio will ultimately lead to a different, absolute difference in disease-free survival. Now, why didn't they choose a hazard ratio that was lower, um, such as 1.1 or even 1.05? That would be even a closer margin. Well, ultimately, this would need a lot more power, and this is already a massive study, and the smaller our margin that we're willing to accept, the more patients we're going to need to recruit. Yeah, so by picking 1.12, they're basically saying that they were willing to accept no more than 12% increase in relative risk and um, disease recurrence with three months versus six months. Given that these were six different trials, they were unable to stratify the randomization by chemotherapy regimen or patient risk factors, but they did have a pre-planned analysis to look at patients who are high risk, such as T4 and 2, and pre-planned analysis to look at the difference between Fulfox and Kpox. So getting into the results, in the end we had 12,834 patients in 12 different countries across these six randomized controlled trials. In the end, about 60% of patients received full and 40% KPOX. A couple things to mention. I highly recommend you taking a look at this study and, and taking a look at Table 1 to look at the heterogeneity in between individual trials. But there was, beyond just the variation of KPOX and full there was also some variation in rates of higher risk fat features. So notably the Scott trial had a higher rate of T4 tumors than any of the other trials, and this was a mostly KPOX-based trial. And although the trials outside of U.S. and Canada did allow investigator choice, there was differences between preferences in the trial in Japan used mostly KPOX. The Greek trial was roughly about 50-50. However, the Italian and France trials used primarily Fulfox. So as expected, there was decreased adherence to the trial regimen in the six-month group as opposed to the three-month group, with the three-month group being about 90% adherent to the trial regimen, as opposed to the six-month group where it was about 80% adherence, and that was for both oxaloplatin as well as the 5-FU component. So with regards to the primary endpoint, which is three-year disease-free survival, at 42 months, um, for the total population, non-inferiority was not confirmed. The three-year disease-free survival was 
75.5% in the six-month group versus 74.6% in the three-month group. And as you can see, those are very similar numbers, only 0.9% difference. However, with the statistical analysis that they use, this was not statistically significant. The confidence interval of the hazard ratio is from 1.0 to 1.15, so this did cross. The 1.12. As expected, the rates of neurotoxicity were significantly lower in the three-month group with roughly about 15% of grade two or higher neurotoxicity noted in those who got three months versus 45 to 50% in the six-month group. The clinical trial only looked up until about one month after completion of chemotherapy, so this does not answer our question to rates of permanent neurotoxicity, and as we mentioned, those rates do decrease with time. Now, when looking at the pre-plant analysis for K-pox versus Fulpox, there was actually an interesting finding so with Fox, six months was actually superior to three months in terms of disease-free survival. But with Kpox, three months and six months did actually meet the non-inferiority criteria, which was pretty unexpected as these regimens are usually considered very similar. So in looking at the subgroups by low risk versus high risk, so low risk patients looking at a three-month res- three regimen versus a six-month regimen overall was seen to be non-inferior as well. In the high-risk patients, non-inferiority was not shown and actually meant the, met the criteria for superiority of the six-month regimen with the three-year disease-free survival of 62.7% in the three-month arm and 64.4% in the six-month arm, giving an absolute difference of 1.7 percentage points and a hazard ratio of 1.12. However, the conference interval extended above 1.12. The authors then looked at the risks in combination with the K-pox versus Fulpox. And for K-pox, the low-risk group did achieve non-inferiority. But however, for the high-risk group with K-pox, it was considered not non-inferior. With a three-year disease-free survival of 64.1 versus 64% median. It should be noted that there was a lower amount of patients in this group, so the confidence intervals were wider um, but it did cross the 1.12 margin. And then with full fox, it didn't matter if you were low risk or high risk. In all of the groups, three months was inferior to six months. And in 2020, this study was followed up with an overall survival analysis and did find similar relationships in regards to K-pox appeared to be non-inferior in the three-month range to six months, whereas full fox was not able to show this. I think it's worth going into the absolute differences in survival at the five-year follow-up because that puts these these relationships a bit into perspective. And I know this is a lot of numbers that we're kind of rallying on about, and we'll unpack this in a moment. But in the overall population, five-year overall survival, looking at three months versus six months, was 82.4% versus 82.8%. In the K-box arm, Five-year overall survival was 82.1% in the three-month group versus 81.2% in the six-month group, showing high inferiority. In patients with full FOX, non-inferiority is not shown, but the overall survival benefit difference was 82.6% versus 83.8%, which is an absolute difference of 1.2% overall survival at five years. So similar to the initial study, three versus six months of KPOX was non-inferior, but only in the low-risk group. 
So in the low-risk group, the five-year overall survival was 81.2% in the three-month arm versus 82.1% in the six-month arm. However, in the high-risk group, the three versus six months did not meet non-inferiority with the five-year overall survival in the six-month group being 72.4% and in the three-month group being 71.4%. So there was a 1% difference in five-year overall survival. In the full-fax group, six months did better than three months in both the low-risk and high-risk patients. So this is an interesting trial because it's one of those situations where a, a negative clinical trial has led to changes to the standard of care. Yeah, so for now for low-risk patients, um, three months of K-POX really is the preferred um, treatment. If, you, if you're going to be using K-POX, um, you know, three months is considered the standard and considered equivalent to six months. So one of the questions is why was there a differential effect between K-POX and FullFox? Of course, we have to keep in mind that this could just be a spurious finding and, and related to individual differences between the clinical trials, but there's been some interest to try to think of other physiologic or practical reasons for why we've seen these differences between studies. As we said, you know, this was investigators' choice and patients were not randomized to Fullfox versus KPOX, so in no way are we saying that KPOX is better than Fullfox or anything like that. There's been some thoughts that differences in dose density of oxaliplatin might play a role. There might be a difference between the efficacy of a uh, fluoroporinamidine analog like capecitabine being given for 14 days compared to 48 hours every two weeks. There was also some thought that the KPOX, it was a little bit harder to assess adherence because they did not use like drug diaries or anything like that. So there was a thought that maybe the six-month group was not as adherent. So that could have made the six months versus three months to be less of a different group. I think it's fair to say that many medical oncologists would like to see this trial run again where we can actually verify whether or not there's significant difference between KPOX and FullFox when it comes to three months versus six-month basis. But we're talking about margins of difference on 1% to 2% overall survival of five years. And this is in a trial that included over 12,000 patients. So I, I don't think we're going to get a follow-up study to this anytime soon. And we're, we have the data that we have and have to try to make our best assessments based upon this. Yeah, I think after this trial, you know, most people are pretty comfortable with three months of KPOX and the low-risk group. Most people are still, you know, choosing six months of KPOX or FullFox with the high-risk group. Even though there was very small differences only 2% five-year overall survival difference. Yeah, if I have a patient with stage 3, T3N1 disease with no high-risk features, I feel pretty comfortable recommending just three months of K-POX. On, on the other hand, if I have someone with a T4N2 colon cancer, I'm going to more likely recommend six months of therapy. From my personal experience, six months of full FOX is more tolerable than six months of K-POX, but that might vary based on your patient population or your own practice. Where, where I think the questions are, and I think um, I think there'll be emerging opinions on how to approach this, are for patients who have maybe in, intermediate risk disease, so a T3N1 with maybe high grade or maybe LVI. Um, should they get a six-month or three-month regimen? I'm not, I'm not sure this trial really gives a clear answer to that. And then the, the matter for patients with stage 2 disease, I think it's pretty comfortable to recommend a three-month regimen, but 
keeping in mind that T4 stage two disease does have a high risk of recurrence. So are, are we going to feel comfortable using three months in stage two with um, many high risk features? I, I would venture to say I would probably feel comfortable three months, but I'm sure that might vary by individual oncologists. Yeah, especially for the low risk with full box. I mean, if you look at the numbers, it was only a 0.3% difference in the low risk group for five-year overall survival. So I mean, even though it wasn't statistically significant, is that 0.3% difference really clinically relevant? You know, I, I think that many people would still go for the three months of the low risk group. And I think this also gives a bit more comfort if you get to the three month period and someone's running into you know significant neuro, um, neurotoxicity and you really are worried about them running into permanent findings, you know, if they're having room temperature neurotoxicity or cold neurotoxicity that's lasting up to the first day of their following cycle, this may give some extra comfort in, in emitting the oxaliplatin component of your regimen after the three-month period, even for high-risk patients. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it warrants a discussion with the patient the high-risk group, you know, the full pox three months versus six months was really only a 2.8% difference in five-year overall survival. And then the K-pox group, it was 1%. So if they're really not tolerating it and, you know, you can speak with them about the numbers, you know, I think that you do feel a little more comfortable if you do have to stop at three months. Yeah, definitely, definitely developing area within our practice of colon cancer and this you know impacts a lot of patients as this is a common disease um, as early colon cancer is a common disease you're going to come across i recommend anyone who's in training to speak to their local colon cancer expert to see how their approach has been as and i anticipate we'll hear lots of expert opinions over the next few years as we continue to as our as as people continue to comment and and reevaluate the study this is our first time trying to go through an individual trial to talk about um, the clinical practice, and we would appreciate any feedback if this was helpful or if we should just stick to the, the, the format we've been using so far. Yeah, we apologize if we're blundering through numbers, but we think it's important to present the facts, and you know, we definitely encourage you guys to read the trials yourselves, you know, the supplement in the appendix, because it's always important to read and interpret a trial for yourself before listening to people's opinions. We really encourage feedback and opinions and if you've seen people approach differently, have you seen, if you've seen your local settings using a three-month full FOX regimen, or have you seen providers using three months for high-risk disease, we'd be happy to hear it. And so thanks for listening and stay tuned as we delve into the upper GI tract with our next talk being on localized gastric and esophageal cancer. Thanks as always. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking About Tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.